turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 as we prepare to come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. We try and begin the year, the first Sunday of the year, with uh, worship that includes the Lord's Supper. And that's why we have planned it for today. So I want you to look at Philippians chapter 3. going to begin reading about halfway through verse 4 of Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Imagine, for you that have never competed in any athletics, imagine that you decide you would like to learn to be a sprinter and to run and attract me. So you find a local coach, you go to the coach of this local club, and you explain your situation, your desire. So this coach says uh, that he can help, so he says, listen, here's what we'll do. You get over there and get limbered up, and I'll teach you some things. But the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to have, there's some other runners here, and I want you to uh, run a practice race with them, and it'll be very encouraging for you, and you'll like, you'll learn a lot, and we'll go from there. So you get ready and you do your stretches and so forth and then you get over in your lane getting ready to run the 100 meter sprint. You glance over to your right and you notice somebody who looks familiar and then you recognize this is the Jamaican runner Usain Bolt. Six time Olympic gold medal winner regarded pretty much by everyone as the fastest person ever. So you and the other runners all take your positions the starting gun is fired and about Oh, a third of the way down the track, you look ahead and see Usain Bolt crossing the finish line. Now, would you be encouraged? Would you go up to the coach and say, you know, I'm just, I'm inspired. I really want to work on this. I, I, I know that's not what you would say. You'd say, this is awful. Uh, I will never run in another race. 
You come to church, things didn't go this very well this week, far worse than most people around you know. Even though you were here a week ago, you probably can't recall what we sang, the prayers, maybe don't even remember the sermon passage or the sermon itself. And now you hear Chip read from Philippians 3 about pressing on and running the race in this extreme level of commitment to pursue Christ's likeness. And you look and you said, I'm next to the spiritual Usain Bolt. And that is the author of this, the Apostle Paul. And so you read in Philippians 3, or you hear read that whatever was profit to me, those things I put my trust in to make me right with God, they became lost when I realized that none of those things could make me right with God. In verse 10, he said he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I mean, that seems like a foreign idea to most of us. He says he wants to become like him in his death. Though it's admirable, we have to ask, how in the world did this man reach such a high level of commitment? If you understand those words that we read, I mean, he's basically saying it doesn't matter whether I live or die. In fact, I would like to die like Christ died. That's what he's saying. Well, it had taken a long time for the Apostle Paul to reach this level. He had been converted 30 years before he wrote these words. And for seven years after his conversion, God hid him away so that he could teach him and Paul learned about the Christian faith. And then he began to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And he planted churches at cities and villages all around the Mediterranean Sea. And by the time he writes this, 30 years after his conversion, he's in prison. And the people to whom he's writing, these people in the city of Philippi, he had not seen them in four years. And that's why he's writing this letter. Now, early in the letter, it's only got four chapters. The first couple of chapters deal with how we are made right with God. That's called justification. But now he switches to sanctification, how we grow in Christ. And in this passage, he says, I've not arrived yet. I'm not perfect. In fact, he goes on and says, I'm nowhere close to being where I'd like to be in my Christian maturity. Now, at that point, he doesn't look like Usain Bolt. To me, he looks like somebody I can relate to, somebody we can learn from. So I want to speak to you in preparation for the Lord's table for the next few minutes about running the race in 2013, pressing on toward Christ's likeness, pressing on to Christian maturity. And what does that look like? How can you do that? So just a few observations from the verses I, I read to you. First, to press on to grow in Christ, you need a holy discontentment. Holy as in H-O-L-Y, discontentment with where you are. I don't misunderstand. As we look at this, the Apostle Paul says in verse 10 that not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. He was content with his relationship with Christ, but where he was in his walk with Christ, he was not content. In fact, you go over to chapter 4, and don't do that now, but there's a well-known verse where he says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And he explains that, said he had learned to live with a little or a lot. He learned to live where he had a little bit of food or a lot of food. He learned to live in safety. He learned to live in danger. 
He'd learned to live among friends. He'd learned to live among enemies. And in all those situations and in all those circumstances, he says, I have learned to be content. So he's very content with where he is, and even when he writes this, which is in prison. But in the area of his relationship with Christ, of where he is in his Christian maturity, he's not content at all. He de- he's not content, therefore he desired more. Very content in circumstances, not content in where he is in his Christ-likeness. Now think about you and me. There's a contrast there, isn't it? More often than not, perhaps you can relate to feeling very complacent with where you are with Christ. Or very content. I know enough. I'm obedient enough. Yeah, it's all right. I, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I, that scary kind of attitude. But over here, oh, I got to be safer. I got to be warmer. I got to have more things. I got to do this. I got to get more recognition. I got to be around friends more. I need more. The very opposite. He was very content with his circumstances, which were pretty bad at times. But in the area of pressing on to Christian maturity, he says, I've got much more to do. Often we are. Yeah, I'm complacent. I'm content with where I am in Christ, but oh man, I've got to really change my circumstances. I've really got to improve those. So maybe this can help us in that whole endeavor. We're not adding to the work of Christ when we talk about not being content in our maturity. Christ's work for you is perfect. It is complete. It is final. You cannot add to the sins that he paid for. So Paul's not comparing himself with other people, he's comparing himself with Christ. And so in verses 12 and 15, he uses words like, I'm not perfect, mature. He's not yet arrived at spiritual perfection, sinless perfection, but he does say that he's perfect or mature in that he recognizes, are you still with me? He recognizes that one mark of maturity is realizing that you're not perfect. That is a mark of maturity, is to realize you've got a long way to go. Now, there are always areas where we can grow. There was a debate long ago that really doesn't go on now, but it was, there was a book, in fact, that had a chapter in it that became well-known. And the chapter was, Must Christ be Savior to be Lord? Must Christ be Lord to be Savior? I got it backwards. Must he be Lord to be Savior? And it had to do with a whole area of, of repentance and with evangelism, and can a person believe in Christ and yet not really be a follower of Christ and still have the assurance they're going to heaven? And I remember hearing Frank Barker, a pastor from Briarwood Presbyterian Church, say that well, really it's like this. If you think of obedience in concentric circles, areas of your life, from the time a person comes to faith in Christ, let's say that person is a 10th grader in high school, then maybe at that moment there's a circle in that person's life that says, I need to obey God in this area. Maybe like the, the rich young ruler, it was the area of his idolatry. And God reveals that to that person. They say, I, you know, I, whatever it may be, some habit, some lifestyle, something, right then in the area of their mind, in their mind they say, I want to serve Christ as Lord in this area, and that's that one area. But as time goes on, there are more areas. Then we recognize Christ should be Lord over the use of my time, the use of money, the, the way I view other people, the way I treat other people, the way I talk, life calling, job calling, vocation. And those areas keep expanding all the time. 
So there's always areas to grow in. Then, about the time you think you're making progress, you get married. And all the debt gets reshuffled. Now I'm trying to learn to obey God as a husband. And then later, as a father. And then a father with children at different ages and stages. And then as a grandparent. And, and then as a pastor. And then as an elder in a church and all these things. And so these circles, they just, they just go on and on and on. So none of us can say that we arrive. About the time that we graduate from elementary school, spiritually, then we hit illness 101. Death of a child, 311. Loss of a job, 212. So a mark of Christian maturity is gratefulness about where you are in Christ, that you cannot add to the work of Christ, that I am saved through him, but I'm not content to remain there. That is, that is good. That is a positive thing. So there should be a contentment with our circumstances, but a lack of contentment with our Christian progress. That's the first observation. Second is, if you and I are to press on, we need focused devotion. Verse 13. It's probably the best known verse out of this entire passage. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, and so forth. This one thing I do. To pursue Christ's likeness, you need focused devotion. No athlete, and using the athletic analogy that Paul uses here, uh, none can succeed at all sports. Many are very proficient to be able to play many sports, but they have to specialize. Those who are exceptional concentrate. They concentrate on one. They have a goal on that. And the Apostle Paul said, speaking of Christ-likeness, pursuing Christ-likeness, this one thing I do, not these 50 things I dabble in. So if you are seeking to grow in Christ, you try to evaluate everything under that umbrella of am I pursuing him? So as I make decisions about areas I mentioned earlier, about money or job or location or move or marriage or other relationships and friendships, hobbies, are they all serving to help me press on toward Christian maturity? Third observation, if you are to press on, you must forget what is behind. Throughout here, Paul mentions, I forget what is behind. Now, in the Bible, to forget is not the same thing as to fail to remember. It's not when you walk up and say, hey, you remember that, remember that person from you? I just I can't recall that name. Remember the face? That's not the biblical concept of forgetting. In the Bible, when it uses that word to forget, it means no longer to be affected by, no longer to be influenced by. So in Jeremiah 31, 34, when God says their sins and iniquities will I remember no more, that is not saying that God has some kind of holy amnesia where he cannot recall our sins. He is saying, I no longer hold those sins against you. Those sins can no longer affect your standing with me. They do not influence my attitude toward you. That is what it means when he says he, does not, he remembers them no more. And so to forget those things which are behind, it doesn't mean our memories are erased. It simply means we break the power of the past in how it affects us for the future. I'm not talking, what I'm going to say is not ruling out things like going to make things right that we, when we've wronged people. 
But whatever hinders you in the past that keeps you from pursuing Christ-likeness now, it may be remorse and despair over past sins that you just continually beat yourself up over something you did or some things you did. And they make you doubt whether you are truly forgiven and it's like a chain and you're trying to run and that chain keeps tripping you up. Paul is saying, I forget those things that are behind. Maybe there are emotional scars physically, abuse, sexual abuse, bitterness about things from the past that you steam over on a daily basis. It may be bereavement that you grieve that you've not been able to get over the loss of that person. I lost a close friend two years ago. His widow sent us a Christmas letter. I read the first two sentences and had to put it down. It breaks my heart to think about the loss of this spiritual mentor, David Nicholas, in my life. And we may need the attitude of King David, who said of his deceased newborn, he will not return to me, but I will go to him. And he did not cave in to the grief of the moment. He had to think about the future. We can become distracted by successes of the past, the glory days. I've been, a, I've been walking with Christ since I was in high school. And I can point back at times, probably as a senior in high school, was the most fruitful learning time of my whole Christian life, about a nine-month period. I recognize that, but I don't seek to repeat that. And I don't live staring at a trophy case of what God did in my life then. And so I find that usually people that have been believers for over 10 years, they have a period they look at, and that was really the, the time God really propelled them forward in their walk with Christ. Maybe as a college student, maybe as a young adult, whenever it might have been. Or the first church they got in where it was a really great church, and they really learned what community was and ministry was and so forth. And there's a tendency for us all through life then to go back to that and make it sound like that's normal. And therefore what's happening now should be like that. And maybe it wasn't normal, it was abnormal. But the important thing is to be looking forward. So it could be all these things. It could be remorse and despair, it can be bitterness, it can be bereavement, it can be the successes of the past. But let's be thankful for past blessings. But in order to press on, you need a perspective that is future-oriented. Fourth. If you're going to press on, you must look ahead with determination. In verse 12, he says, I strain toward what is ahead. The picture is of a sprinter leaning forward. Can you awaken each day and say, Lord, here's a new day that you have given me. I know that there are new things to be done and new lessons to be learned. Help me to use this day as well as possibly in your service. And then that night, say, Lord, I've not done everything today that that I could have without your power and your strength. Thank you for being with me. Help me now to place today's experiences behind and rest well so that I may serve you tomorrow. In verse 14, the metaphor changes from I strain forward to I press on. Discipline, perseverance, concentration. Paul was an optimist. When it came to his expectations of God, he was an optimist. He expected God to answer prayer. He expected God to be at work in his life. He expected God that he was going to use the Holy Spirit to mold him to the image of Christ. He expected God to take the words he preached, which was the gospel, 
And through his power, God's power to change hearts, he expected to see people converted. He expected to see churches planted. He expected to see those churches multiply. He expected God to use him. That's a good attitude. And I think it's very important for us to look forward. Look forward toward pursuing Christ for a very very simple reason. This occurred to me within the past couple of days. I can't remember exactly when, but this was the part I got out of this sermon preparation. And it sounds so basic, it sounds elementary. God made you in such a way that you cannot look back and you cannot look forward at the same time. You realize that? God created you. You cannot look in two directions at once. Now, if you're looking to the past, spiritually speaking, then you cannot have your eyes fixed on Jesus. It will not work. And Paul says, I forget what is behind and I strain forward toward the goal. He is wide open to Christ. And he says he does this to win. When Barbara and I went to seminary, I entered with a class. There was a guy named Steve. Steve at that time was a kind of a little, little overweight. You wouldn't have looked at him thought he was athletic. Well, some transformation took place over the next two and a half years, and Steve became a long-distance runner. If he had been a runner before, it had been years, years before. But I don't, never talked to him about how he got into this, but he began running, 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 entering races, and doing very well to such an extent that he was aiming toward going to the Olympic trials. I mean, it was a, a radical transformation. And one day, our third year in school, I said, well, I started running some. I, I just run to, you know, work off stress, and trying to lose some weight. And he said, and he looked at me and said, why do you run? I said, oh, I'm trying to get in shape. And he just looked down like he shook his head. I said, why do you run? He said, I run to win. He, could, he said, I would never run to get in shape. I run to win. And that's what he was doing. That's what Paul says spiritually. I'm not just fooling around with this. I'm just not dabbling in it. I run to win in pursuing Christ's likeness. When does old age begin? Look, when we, on the church officers and staff, try to divide up the Sunday school classes and give names to them, <laughs> our congregational communities, when does a person move from being young adult to mid-adult to adult, and then the dreaded word, seniors? I have sat in meetings where the title for that last group was debated by guys my age who would fit in it, saying, no, let's don't call it that, let's call it this, let's call it that. Does it begin at 30? 40? 50? 60? I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down. Old age is the point in life when a person ceases to look forward and looks back. Now, if, if all you talk about is the past... Maybe you've reached old age. And let's thank God for the past. Let's thank God for what he's done. But as far as our walk with Christ and our Christian maturity, there are better days ahead. There are things we can look forward to, to grow in him. So are you complacent in your walk with Christ? Or are you pursuing godliness and pressing on to Christian maturity? I'll leave you with this last thought as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. 
in high school sports and college sports today, the atmosphere is, is all you have to win, you have to win, you have to win. And the business aspect of sports has been pressed down further and further and further where the fun times are almost gone and it's all so serious. We have a daughter who's a college athlete and so I watch and I'm a student of motivation and I watch how coaches try to motivate people. And by and large today, the carrot has been forgotten and it's all stick. Do this, do this, do this, or this will happen, or this threat, or this threat, and it's win or die. Life's not worth living if you did not win in that game. Now contrast that with little kids playing upward sports. This past fall, I was at a college soccer match, I think on a Thursday night, and on Saturday morning, we're out here at Hepzibah watching our four-year-old grandson with some of your kids and the grandkids playing upward soccer. Soccer is used very loosely in that term that I'm saying. <laughs> but here they are out there. They're out on the field, and everybody showed up in there. They've got their uniforms, and they've got these colors. Some of them, their parents or grandparents have really spent money and bought the color-coordinated sunglasses, and they're snapping pictures and taking video, and it looks like the Academy Awards with all the cameras out there. And here are these little kids about that tall and girls and boys, and they're out there. And the coaches, it's just such a different approach. There's no win or die. It's, hey, we are here to have fun. You're, look how good you're doing. Kick, look, he kicked the ball, and it moved, and everybody cheers. And so I'm watching one of these games, and I'm up on a hill, and, and my grandson's team's going this way and the other team, and, and then our grandson kicked it. Yay, yay, look. And then guess what happened? Some birds flew over, and he goes, look. <laughs> and all the kids are stopping, and the coaches are yelling, and, and they're watching the birds. Now, even though the language that Paul uses is more the win or die kind of thing, I think the way God coaches us, this is just my, my own personal opinion. There's no theological soundness to it, maybe at all. I can't point to a chapter and verse, but I think maybe God coaches us like an upward soccer coach. He says, come on, Chip. All right, look, here's the race. I'm here at the end of the track. Now, you come on, come on, come on, and I'm down here, and I'm... Hey, look, there's, there's a garbage can with all my past sins in it. I want to go over here and do a little dumpster diving and, you know, pull out all the trash from my life and things I said I wish I hadn't, things I did, and, you know, and, and then it, and he's like, oh, he's got my... T-. And so he said, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Well, there's a trophy case. Man, those were the glory days back then. Just think about it. I just want to freeze frame life right there. And, and he said, no, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, look at me, look at me, look, watch me, just come right here. Come on. You know the Father this morning. If you put your faith in Christ where you are in the race, on the track, let's pray together. Father, we are humbled and amazed that you say in Jeremiah that you will forgive our wickedness and will remember our sins no more because of the work of Jesus. Uh, Lord, we have a thousand distractions. We have a thousand things to keep our eyes all pressing on to Christian maturity. We pray that your Holy Spirit might empower us to pursue you above all else, that everything else in our life would be subservient to that and supportive of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.